the History Show with Mars Duncan. Good evening. On this week's programme... To some degree, you're mimicking the ogres, the, you know, the horrific beings. The normal roles were reversed and upturned. It's a kind of mayhem, controlled mayhem. Halloween traditions, voices from the National Folklore Collection, illustrate how the Irish celebrated this festival over the centuries. Also, in search of the she. And we are still very much attached to the notion of the fairy folk. They were around for an awful long time, you know, and we can stop talking about them, but it doesn't mean that they've completely gone Michael Houlihan joins me to talk about the history of Irish fairies, those mischievous creatures that are feared and revered in equal measure. Plus... Well, I coined the name House Tree because we were learning about the history of houses, so House Tree. We were all pretty happy because it's better than just learning it out of a book. We'll visit a sixth class in Dublin who are finding out about the hidden history that's all around us. With summer a distant memory and the harvest period having drawn to a close, Halloween was considered a turning point in the traditional calendar year. As the beginning of the dark season, Ihahona, literally November night, celebrated at sundown on the 31st of October, has long stood out in popular tradition as a time particularly associated with the spirits of the other world. Individuals out travelling the road at this time were considered liable to meet with the fairies, the dead or the puka, the mischievous phantom horse that would abduct wayfarers, taking them on terrifying rides across the countryside by night. Joining me in studio this evening to talk about the traditions of Halloween, some no longer practised, is Dr Christor McCarthy, the director of the National Folklore Collection in UCD. Um, Christor, you've brought some fascinating audio recordings from the collection, which we're going to hear as we go along, where people talk about their memories of these traditions. But first of all, let's talk about the history and the origins of Samhain. It's been with us for millennia at this stage. Yes, it's very, very old and it's very much part of Celtic mythology, the origins of Samhain, because the Celts divided, like most societies in Europe, divided the year in two halves. So this would have been the beginning of the dark period of the year when there was no growth, whereas May was really the celebration of summer and you're entering into the most fertile and most productive parts of the year. So it's not surprising that an awful lot of tradition and mythology and belief and practice centres around Iahauna or Halloween, November Day and indeed May Day because they are almost like liminal points in time. You know, the end of one period, the beginning of another. And in the case of Halloween, it's profound because it's beginning of the dark period of, of the year. And I would imagine that some of the things that we used to get up to, not so much anymore, it's all trick or treat now, uh, it's all to do with, 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 with sweets and candy and chocolate and stuff, but the things that you people used to get up to with, with apples, for example, was to do with the agriculture of that time of the year. It's around the time that you basically bring the apples in, you pick them. Absolutely, Miles. It's, it's seasonal. So, you know, you bring in the harvest, and everything, uh, apples, fruits, everything had to be picked. Food stored, your potatoes safely dug into pits and so on. The animals are brought down from, if they were grazing on the hills, you brought them in closer to home. Sometimes in under the same roof, indeed, um, historically, 
in this part of Western Europe and, and further, further north. So it's the end of the agricultural year. And it's also the time, interestingly, November, early November, when tributes were paid, you know, to landlords and formerly kings. We know that the old assemblies of um, Rathcrohan and Tara, Carmen and Wexford were huge assemblies and a lot of business was transacted uh, at that time. So you, you bought and sold, you exchanged animals and, as I said, you paid tributes. Uh, tributes to the landlord in November would have been November would have been one of the gale days the gale so that's days. when you basically paid him the rent so that's Ex- the tribute he was looking for exactly uh, now one of the this is one that I must say I was completely unfamiliar with uh, you, you brought us as I say a number of clips the first one and we'll hear it in a moment is uh, a man called Patrick Johnson from County Westmeath and he talks about putting out a bucket of water on Halloween night what was, what was that about I haven't come across that one at all yeah this is clean water it was an important time of the year for, for two reasons. One, that liminal moment that I talked about meant that the dead and supernatural beings were visible and could pay visits at that time. So it was considered very important to keep the house tidy, swept, clean. To some degree even, and this spilled over into All Souls Day, you know, which is the 1st of November, the idea of leaving a, a symbolic plate of food or something for the dead but also for the fairies so and supernatural beings because there was a great fear that you could be injured or taken into the other world at mm. this point in time. So all those preparations were essential you know, to, to guard against any interference by uh, the supernatural world. So this is Patrick Johnson from Moat, County Westmeath, recalling how people would prepare the house for Halloween. It was the Hullentide night, and everyone that time would have clean water put in, a bucket of clean water. And the next, I said, what did they want, would He'd say, any water in tonight? No, well, it has to be in for tonight. And I'd say, what are you talking about, the clean water? What has to be in for? Well, the good people is supposed to be in Every house they'll go round about and has a great time tonight. And often a child has to be washed. They want the, co- the water. And if it's not there, something in the house will be done or a pig a day or something. But the water is supposed to be there for that night. The voice of Patrick Johnson from Moat in County Westmeath there. Now, it was it was a celebration, Chris, though perhaps because it was darker, it's not surprising the festival garnered supernatural and otherworldly association, I think presumably from the earliest times. Yes, the supernatural dimension is so important, it's so critical. I mean, the reason, for instance, that people go out in disguise, they you know, guising at this time of the year, again, this was to disguise your own personality for two reasons. One, you you couldn't be identified by the other world, by supernatural forces, and you were less likely to be uh, swept, as they'd say. And on the other hand, it allowed you to get up to all sorts of mischief because a lot of, <laughs> the, the, you know, social norms were temporarily suspended, you know, for this moment in time. So young people especially could get up to all sorts of tricks and mischief whereas, you know, that wouldn't be permitted outside of that particular time. So it's a moment of disorder, if you like, and 
it in itself emphasises the importance of social norms. It actually reinforces, so it lets off steam, in effect. Uh, Now, adults would also get involved as well and uh, would do things to frighten children. This is uh, Willie Rourke from Roscommon and he recalls how grown-ups used to scare the children with stories of the puka as a warning to them. A time ago when the old people be around the fire where there'd be a lot of children well there might, might be two or three families of children around about playing and mm. in a, for an hour and then they'd all go but the old people would be telling ghost stories about where they seen the poker and such an old person, an old man coming up the road with a big stick under his arm and a big whisker on him, yeah. going to bring you off. Then they tell you after November night, yeah. no one would be cut out, any child would be cut out after that, the poker would bring him off, stick his two horns into him and carry him off. Yeah. Well, then they were telling them that no one had ate slows yeah. after November night, that the poker used to come and make his nuisance on them. I see. <laughs> the voice of Willie Rourke from Roscommon in that audio recording from the National Folklore Collection. Now, Chris Thor, sound was, it was a night for celebration, and with celebrations, obviously, there has to be food, a tradition that we uphold today. So what are the, the I mean, things like, well, apples, obviously, mobbing for apples, barn brack, colcannon and stuff like that. Tell us about some of the culinary traditions associated with Halloween. Yes, and these are festive foods with the em- emphasis on the fruits, primarily. In the case of colcannon, these are the newly dug potatoes, you know, harvested. Uh, so you'd have a festive dish prepared from them mixed with a bit of cabbage. There's there's great argument as to exactly whose recipe <laughs> everyone has a as a mother or a grandmother who had a particular recipe. But that was a festive food, you know, again with lots of butter. You know, make a hole in the centre and pile a load of butter into it. Um very fattening. Mm. But uh you know, that's the beginning of winter, cold period of the year, so that certainly wasn't on people's minds dieting at that time of the year. So apples, fruits, nuts. And in Ireland's case, it's hazelnuts, primarily. You know, we think now of monkey nuts being almost derogere at Halloween, but hazelnuts were the traditional ones. So it's quite simple food in, in many ways, but a feast. And, and the barm brack, nowadays we associate at this time of the year with a, just a ring. But, uh, you know, back in the day, there was far more than a ring in the barm brack. Yes, you could have a little piece of wood. You could have a little piece of cloth or something thrown in if you got the little piece of wood you would wind up poor this is a form of divination in effect and a lot of divination divining what the future held for you was very central to Halloween and the barn brack is a nice example of that so several little items including a ring or a coin for instance so that would be riches right riches exactly so a ring would be you're going to get married married cloth a cloth or a piece of uh, a string meant you would remain single and are, are poor, All right. Anything in there that we put in there to signify death, perhaps, or anything as morbid as that? Well, that was done in another way, you know, with the saucers, the, if you like, where somebody was blindfolded, three saucers were put in front of them. In one of the saucers was water, in the other a ring, and in the other clay. So the saucers were moved about rather like a three-card trick, mm. 
and then you selected it. If you selected the clay, you would have an early death. The ring, of course, marriage. And water, you would travel. You would go abroad. Across the sea. Yeah. So it's to do with migration as well. Very much so. And that was obviously, as you know, a, a huge theme uh, in Irish social history, immigration. Okay. You mentioned uh, divination. The next clip we're going to hear is Maura Ban i talking about the various games they played, which included divination. Uh, Halloween sure was much the same now, but I don't think they do it very much now. We'd have um, the apples, you know, and to try and catch one hanging out of a string and trying to catch and that sort of thing. Then you'd have a saucer, you'd have clay on that, another saucer, you'd have water on it, another saucer and you'd have a ring on it. Forget the rest of them and you'd be blindfolded, each one would be blindfolded and they'd go over whichever one they'd put their hand into. If you put your hand on the ring, you'd be married the first and you put her hand on the water, you'd cross the sea and if you put your hand in the clay, you'd die before the first <laughs> and ah, that'll go on much, I think much the same happens now but I don't think they do it so often now I was more at Banny Ogoin talking about divination now Halloween is most associated today with children dressing up obviously centuries ago the costumes would have been a lot simpler, less elaborate than they are today so the, the reasoning behind dressing up. Was this to, as you suggest, maybe to disguise yourself from uh, the fairies or the people of the other world? Very much so. And to some degree, you're mimicking the ogres, the, you know, the horrific beings like the pook, the fairies and so on that were believed to be uh, present at that so time. So the equivalent of wearing a zombie costume today, uh, I suppose. Effectively, yeah. effectively. So there's an element of horror about it. Also, as I said, gave you licence to do things, to pretend you were somebody else. I mean, cross-dressing featured very strongly at this, for instance. You know, men dressing up as women, women dressing as men. So, you know, the, the normal roles were reversed and upturned. It's a kind of mayhem, controlled mayhem. And then there's the mischiefing, the, the mischief-making. And in, in the southeast, they often refer to it, and still do in the, the Gaeltacht area of Waterford, as Ihenahamalaysia, the night of wretchedness. And uh, uh, in Waterford and Wexford, they would take it to huge extremes. You know, they would take doors off barns. They would do things like climb up onto a roof, a thatched roof, and cover the chimney with a sack to smoke people out. All sorts of tricks. I presume this is something you did not to people you liked, but to people you disliked. Or well, did, it did it necessarily follow? The milder forms of mischief were directed at everybody, you mm. know, so everybody got a got a clout, as it were. But yes, if there were particularly grumpy uh, <laughs> individuals, this was a way of sending a message to them. Now, Chris, there were a, a phrase most associated with Halloween today, um, you know, I would think of it as a very much an important phrase, trick or treat. Is it true that on Halloween there would be groups of young men, young men, or not children, going around causing a lot of, of mischief. Yeah, it's interesting. We associate Halloween with children almost exclusively now. But this was really young men primarily uh, going from place to place and creating a certain amount of mayhem, you know, licence to behave badly. And I suppose over time that has devolved, and you see this often with a lot of traditions, that where children take on the role, it's a sign that the tradition is in decline. Hmm. 
today it's more democratic as well because you know there's no distinguish it's not just young largely young men this is our boys and girls uh, dressing up but I'm, I'm taking from what you're saying about people taking doors off barns of removing gates uh, that kind of thing and also a lot of young men and we know what young men can get up to when they're uh, trying to have a bit of fun that Halloween would not necessarily have been welcomed by everybody no, there was a certain amount of fearfulness, <clears throat> but that's appropriate for the time of year. I in, suppose. In, in some ways, you know, <clears throat> you're going from the period of light into the period of darkness. So the dark side manifests. And I guess we we expect that. For our final clip. So we're going to hear from Michael Walsh from Offaly, who recalls the youths going around playing tricks on their unsuspecting neighbours. They take their gates and they'll throw them into a drain They'll be our next day looking for them and they'll take a barn door off of a cow house or off of a barn or a door off of a cow house and they'll carry him off and they'll go and they'll take that man's one or two of his gates or wee little wicked gates or doors and they'll take him off somewhere else. <laughs> and they'll be going around nearly all night. That was Michael Walsh from Offaly. That's a tradition we hope is well and uh, truly gone. And, I mean, to what extent are we, the Irish, accountable for the entire tradition of Halloween? Obviously, it's a tradition that is only observed in, in certain countries. But I'm thinking, to what extent did the Irish bring Halloween to the United States and then re-import trick or treat a uh, century, century and a half later? Yes, it's an intriguing um, process, but certainly it would have been largely Irish, who the Irish populations, the diaspora, who introduced uh, and made popular the idea of Halloween. And it worked well in America because the, the Spanish, the, the Mexicans... They had the Day of the Dead. They had the Day of the Dead. So mm. there's a natural overlap between them. So the idea of the skulls and the crossbones and so on entered in there. But certainly... It really took hold in the 1980s after the Halloween series of movies came out. And that really, we've experienced a backwash uh, of that here in Ireland. So as a child growing up in Dublin at this time of year, we would go from house to house saying, help the Halloween party. It's as simple as that. Any fruit, any nuts and maybe a bit of money, perhaps even sweets. Nowadays, the the fruit and the nuts are less important. It's money. It's sweets and so on like that. And You'll get the fruit thrown back at you if you, if you offer it. Yeah. <laughs> this is it. And it's now trick or treat. Yeah. So, but folklore traditions don't stand still. So, you know, we can expect things to evolve and uh, it's kind of spreading. So it's, a, I suppose it's a form of cultural imperialism that has come back to haunt us. Chris Thor, thank you very much indeed for talking to us this evening. For anyone who would like more accounts of the kind of things that went on at Halloween from the National Folklore Collection, go to the uh, collection's website, duchas.ie, D-U-C-H-A-S dot I-E, where you will find a whole host of material. My guest was Chris Thor McCarrick. And uh, Chris, thank you very much for sharing with us the history of Ihahauna and the traditions of that festival. Uh, those that remain, those that are forgotten and uh, those that, as you suggest, have been renewed. Thank you, Miles. Well, earlier we heard a few references to the supernatural in those National Folklore Collection recordings. After the break, we'll be hearing more about the history of the fairies and how they captured the Irish imagination for centuries. Stay with us. Follow us on Twitter at RTE History Show. 
Now we're going to talk about the supernatural beings that captured the imagination of Irish people for centuries. I'm talking, of course, about the fairies, those mischievous creatures that were feared and revered in equal measure. The recently published book Irish Fairies, A Short History of the She, that's S-I-D-H-E, S-I-Father-D-H-E, explains how every corner of Ireland retains a memory of the fairies, be it a cave, a hill, a tree, a lake or a fort. The author is historian Michael Houlihan, a founder of the Quinn Heritage Group in County Clare, who has long been interested in Irish cultural and folk traditions. Michael, you're very welcome indeed to The History Show. Um, why is it that I associate Clare above all with fairies? I suspect for two reasons, and I could be wrong on both. One is that there was a very famous Banfassa, or wise woman here in Clare, Biddy Early or Bridget Early, mm. and her name became quite national for a while, especially when Clare were playing, uh, <laughs> when they <laughs> the were curse. playing uh, 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 Molly Malone's in, in, in uh, GA a good many years ago. The second reason is that we have a very eminent uh, folklorist in this county, Eddie Lennon, a, a, yes. a native of Kerry uh, from my own side of the world, and he has done so much work to promote the whole tradition of fairy lore, if you like, for many years. I think, uh, yeah, I think you hit the nail on the head twice there, actually. Um, OK, <laughs> let's, let's talk about the nomenclature, first of all. Uh, they go, yes. these creatures go by many names. We know them familiarly yes. as fairies, but give me examples of uh, other appellations. Well, fairies is probably the least appropriate name for them. I think if we went back to the 19th century that the Irish people living all over the country would not have thought of them as being the fairies. They would have been more thought of as the she, as, as you mentioned earlier. Now, they have a lot of names. The good people, the, uh, the little people, the wee people. The needy uh, All kinds of gentle names for them. And why do you, what have you got against the, the description fairy? Do you think it's uh, too modern or, or uh, inappropriate? I, it's not so much. It, it conjures up certain notions of, of the she, which may not be quite consistent with the old understanding of them in, in, in we'll say, 18th to 19th century. When the she came to prominence in this country, a lot of it came when, when you started having a lot of travel by people from Europe and England. And they got, a lot of them got hugely interested in, let's use the word, the fairies, and began to write about them or send back accounts about them. And from there, the, the whole fairy notion grew more and more. And then you had some of the English, English as in the land of England, characteristics creeping into the Irish she. And they, I find that sometimes they're a little different to precisely how they're remembered by Irish people. So in other words, they're not, it's, we're not talking about Tinkerbell in Peter Pan here. Basically. Absolutely not. Absolutely not. And, and I mean, that's okay too for a certain, at a certain level. I, I, I have never come across a quotation whereby the fairies are described as being winged people, mm. you know, winged, if you want to put it that way, individuals. Uh, nor were they, as far as I'm concerned, and I, this, I know people would argue, argue with me, nor were they necessarily diminutive. They were full height. They were... As tall as, as we would be, and possibly even taller a little bit. Okay, interesting. Um, now, when it comes to the origin of belief in fairies, you outline a few theories in your book. And I think your, your own favourite theory is that uh, Neolithic period structures inspired the belief. I think they did. Well, they, they were a catalyst to what was to follow. And a great part of it is it was captured in our very early mythology, written by 
Celts, if you will, Celtic peoples, where uh, we didn't actually have a beginning race here in Ireland. We had a series of invasions. We had five or six groups that came into the country. And the two last groups were first the two had their done who would be defeated by us, us being the Malaysians, or the last group in. And the two had their done and the Malaysians fought. And from that battle, the two had their done agreed to go underground and to become, as we know them now, as the Shi, or the fairies. And the Malaysians, us, came to prominence at that point. But a lot of it was driven by their experience, because when the Celts arrived, and I'm not exclusive to the Celts, you had the country full of all kinds of portal tombs and all sorts of other things, and the Celts couldn't quite understand what these monuments were all about. So in the absence of, of an explanation, they created an explanation, and I think that became the she. Just give us an idea of some of the other explanations, some of the other theories. Yeah, well, another theory is, if, like myself, you had been reading about them, they also tend to be very closely associated with death, or that they had a, a role to play with death, and there were intermediaries of death. There was a, a famous Welsh folklorist, Alan Bruford, who wrote, it appears that the fairies of the guardians of the gateway to the next world, both departments of it. So what he was saying is that, that they protected their own uh, realms, shall we say, and the realms of the dead. So that there's a bit of an overlap between death back then and the fairies themselves. So that was that explanation. Another one too that came earlier, but it's not as well used, is that the fairies may have been a part of a lost race. They may have been the original Aborigines of Ireland. And when you had the Celts and others, I'm not hang everything off the Celts, but when others came in, they were pushed away into the, the green swords and, and, and nature and uh, became subsequently a slightly lost group who became the she. Now, there's, there are positives, there are negatives associated with the she. One of the negatives is this lore that we have in this country of the, of the changeling. I'm sure they have it elsewhere as well. Um, mm-hmm. And uh, Just explain to me what a changeling is and, and what you think is the origin of this particular mythology. Absolutely. I think this, the fairies served many purposes for us Irish and the society of the 18th to early 19th century. And one of them was, which was a great, great, great uh, uh, pain for people, was the death or, or the less than perfect children that they may have had delivered. The changing itself was whereby you had what was understood to have been a fine, healthy, mortal baby being replaced by an ailing, kind of sick, hungry child. And people couldn't come to terms with this, this child that was there. And that was more or less wasting. So the whole ideology of the changeling came to pass at that point. And uh, it, it stayed with us for an awful long time. What it was was a, 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 an ailing person or she replacing a healthy human child. And of course, what it really was, it was a psychological help for families, parents who had a child that may have been less than healthy in any case, and it mm. was a place to kind of hang the whole thing for a while. You also have a chapter on fairy doctors and wise women. I'm sure one of those is uh, Biddy Early, and we'll talk about yes. her in detail in just a few minutes. But um, these were these fairy doctors and wise women were important figures for centuries in Ireland as purveyors of holistic medicine, weren't they, up until the, the 19th Absolutely. century? Absolutely. And in fact, there's a growing appreciation again of, of 
the Manafasa, or the, the uh, fairy women, and men to some extent as well, whereby they were the herbalists for villages, and they were the only source of cure, if you will, for the village. There was no pharmacy to be had, so they would go into the wild, pick whatever plants, which through time and experience they knew to be helpful to some degree. Now, they wouldn't be able to take on all the big stuff, but they took care of an awful lot of stuff. And as well as using herbs very effectively, and many of the herbs they used are still renowned to this day as, as having curative properties, but they also use, how would I put you, a spiritual cure. And the cure could come in the form of either religion and visit to holy wells and such things, or engaging to some extent with the fairies. In fact, most people in the 18th and 19th century, if they had gone to see a fairy woman or whoever, would have been desperately disappointed if they came away without being told that they needed to connect with a holy well or some or, or a fort or something for for healing. So they were a little bit like the Native American shaman or, or You've got it, absolutely. That's what, in my own head, that's exactly how I mm. think of them. They were very much like the shaman in their days. Now, that tradition continued on until the second half of the 19th century, at least, before uh, conventional uh, medicine began to take over slowly, slowly. But the people had enormous amounts of faith in them. And in truth, the stories that we are told, including Billy Early, would suggest that they actually enjoyed a lot of success. And, and they had, the fairy doctors, they had their own They had their own toolkit, like the, you know, the famous black bag that the doctor used to arrive they, in when, when doctors came to your had door. indeed, you're absolutely correct. Uh, there was all kinds of unusual, and we would look at them today and think they were all very foolish. But, but uh, you know, what the hell are you going to get from this? You know, they used very kind of, how would I put it to you, maybe less than conventional means of helping people. But I, I wrote that they use herbs, crystals, flint, as in old arrowheads that they'd found, spring water, holy water, prayers, charms, chants, magic and fairy council. Now, whether you would feel good about approaching someone with that toolkit to, to get you better, I don't know, but that's what was available to them. Now let's talk about about Biddy. Which Biddy Biddy Early is one of my favourites, one of my favourite <laughs> characters in in Irish history. And yes. uh, what I love about her is that she absolutely did not give a toss about exactly. uh, people who were placed above her in life or who were supposed to be authority figures. You are absolutely correct. She was an extremely independent individual. She was an extraordinary woman who did not bow to conventions at any level. She was married, I think, three or four times at least. And she practiced her medicine for the good of the people. She was never she never asked for a donation for her help, but she was definitely a standalone individual, much admired and much spoken, well spoken of to this day, you know. And she could really turn her hands to all kinds of things, except she wouldn't have been so big in, in, in we'll say, bones or bone breaks that was left to the, the bone setters, mm. but in most other things. And she was certainly, from the stories that remain, I, she seemed to have an intuitive sense of what was needed by people. She didn't, as you say, care about convention. She didn't care about the, the, the landlords or, or the bosses or the priests. She got on with doing whatever she felt was needed at the time. But I suspect that the reason why she is remembered uh, above anybody else is that she was actually very effective. Yes, I agree with you. Uh, she brought about an awful lot of cures for people. And people held her in great admiration for the good things she did for them and maybe their families. So that, that tradition continued for an awful long time. Now, she wasn't exclusively the only one. There was other people who were effective, apparently effective uh, at curing people as well. But she would have been 
very powerfully strong in terms of getting the results she needed. Now, um, if any of our listeners have seen the, the, the lovely cartoon saloon film Song of the Sea, they'll, they'll know mm. what we're talking about next because you've got a chapter on sea fairies and you, yes. you think of this as a whole other realm of she society. I do. I, I, I feel myself, and, and again, look, come here, we, we, I'm only offering an opinion, but there was a whole plethora of stuff associated with the sea and sea fairies. You have what they used to call the ninth wave. It's still quite commonly known. And that was a, a wave on, on the water. On, this is the ocean here, beyond which you were in magical realms. Inside that you were in the, the mortal realms, but not beyond that. There are many legends, including here in Clare, about sunken cities. We have at least one or two of them off the west coast of Clare. Then you have, of course, the whole wonderful stories about Blessed Isles. Probably the most famous being Tirlanog, where Oshin and Neve went to. High Brazil then, of course, was one. High Brazil was one of the fairy isles. Mm. And so strong was it, or the belief in it, and those who claim to see it, that from, I was just I was reading from a note here, that from 1325 to 1870, European nautical charts featured High Brazil. Mm. So, you, you know, there was a, a huge acceptance of the idea that there was fairies out there. And, of course, the most powerful uh, fairy associated with the sea was Mananon MacLeod. So, yes, you did, but they don't quite get as much attention as the land-based fairies. And were they vindictive or were they protective or were they a bit of both, like, like all the other bit fairies? A bit of both. bit of both. If they were having a bad day, they, they, a bit of both. <laughs> I mean, if they were having a bad day, would they drown sailors? No. I mean, I've never read specifically that. that, that. Now, there would be instances where that... They would irritate people at sea sometimes. And the best way to deal with them, apparently, was to use a piece of metal. And again, I think this goes back to, to I had a theory that they may have been, the fairies may have been an Aboriginal people until the Celts came with their swords and their spears and their steel, which put the, the fairies down. Because if you had uh, any troubles with fairies, certainly we'll take the one associated with the sea, if you had a piece of metal and threw it into the wave, everything would calm down. In other words, the fairies would retreat. They didn't want to bother you anymore. We should stop talking about them as if they were entirely in the past because they're still very much yes. with us. As yes. uh, anybody who has attempted, for example, to build a motorway or to build a road would be very well aware of. Absolutely. Just to take the motorway thing, and I'll offer you maybe another one if we have time. In 1999, they were, they were doing up what is now the M18 motorway from Limerick to Ennis. And a local man here, uh, I think we mentioned you know, Eddie Lenehan, was concerned because it was a tree, an old hawthorn tree, these tend to be shkakyals, uh, in the path of the intended motorway. And he, he wrote papers and wrote to lots of people, places. And he got enough attention that they changed the, the, the road ever so slightly. And to this day, the tree he was trying to protect is still standing in the middle of the of the motorway, the two lanes up and down, north and south. The tree still stands there as a sign of the success he had in stopping the, uh, the, the, the motorway going, cutting right through this place. But that wasn't the first time. That happened in Northern Ireland as well. People were incredibly protective of the lone trees to be found around the country because lone trees were considered to be the provenance of the fairies. And Danny Healy Ray got involved in a Absolutely. controversy. Tell me about that. 
<laughs> he did. Danny, uh, in his role as a county councillor in Kerry, was getting very concerned because, again, of roadworks that were cutting right through an area very rich in uh, fairy forts, if you like. And he felt there was disturbance going on. And this got, of course, made the papers and, and, and didn't go down so well initially. But then with reflection, people saying, this guy is right. We need to be careful that the fairies and the trees and the forts are, are very much part of our cultural heritage. And we need to take better care of them and be more respectful of them. And really, by the time the, the, the vote was taken, as you might say, people were, were agreeing with him very much so. I mean, I suppose the point is, if you don't have to go near them and you don't have to touch them, why would you? Precisely. Um, Precisely. Uh, OK, now there are a number of people who may or may not have fallen foul, a number of very well-known people who may have fallen foul of the Shi over the years. John DeLorean, was he cursed Absolutely. by the Shi? He was. Well, I won't say he was, but it certainly would. <laughs> the information will tell you that he was. He began his, his, his car manufacturing plant in Dunmurray in West Belfast since in 1979, as far as I can remember. There was a fa- very famous and very old, venerable hawthorn standing on the ground intended to be used for the factory. He could get nobody locally, no labourers, nobody else would touch the tree, and he had to bring in guys from far away to take the tree down. The local people there were convinced that, look, that wasn't a good thing to do. And anyway, within a couple of years... Having done that, his factory failed and it closed in 1982, five or six years after it had started, and was bankrupt. Now, whether you want to attribute that to the fairies and the disrespect for fairy ground or not, I don't know. But that's a legend that still stands today. If I may turn into Boris Johnson for a moment, I might just say post hoc ergo propter hoc. (laughs) Uh, Okay, you know know what I'm talking about. In other words, it may or may not have been a direct consequence of of the... No, but there are those who are quite happy to accept that it is. Yeah. And does fairy lore still remain with us. Obviously, it's not as alive today as it was in the 18th and 19th centuries, but it still clings on, doesn't it? It absolutely does. It absolutely does. Um, if, if I were to go to the pub for a pint, which I sometimes do, but not as often as I'd like to, uh, and you get talking about these things, people say, ah, what are you all about? You know, but within 10 or 15 minutes, the conversation moves a fraction, and you'll suddenly have people telling you about this fort, or this tree, or this event, or what happened after something else. So, it's in the recesses, but it's in there. And we are still very much attached to the notion of the fairy folk. They were around for an awful long time, you know, and we can stop talking about them. But it doesn't mean that they've completely gone, because I don't believe they have at all. I think they'll be knocking around with us for a long, long time to come yet. Well, I'm very glad that they have found another excellent biographer in your good self. And the book is called Irish Fairies, A Short History of the She. It's available online at buythebook.ie. That's B-U-Y, buy the book. Uh, And it's also available in bookshops in Ennis, in Tralee, uh, Limerick and Galway. The author is Michael Houlihan. Michael, many thanks for joining us on The History Show. Thank you for having me, Miles. Thank you. After the break, we'll be visiting the Sacred Heart Boys National School in Ballygall in Dublin and a group of sixth-class boys who've produced a podcast about local history. Follow us on Twitter at RTE History Show. Welcome back. We're going to hear now from a group of young men who are delving into the history of their local community in North Dublin. Sixth-class boys in Sacred Heart Boys National School in Ballygall have produced the House Tree podcast, which demonstrates how history 
is often right on our own doorsteps. Our researcher Liz Gillis paid them a visit and found out more. So there's a community of people living in here in Ballygall going back a thousand odd years ago. And Ballygall is volumeing out all the townland of the stranger or the foreigner. But some people think it's actually Balloch, the way of the foreigner, the way of the stranger. So they passed through our area. So while some never settled in Ballygall, they passed through it together because the main road was straight through Ballygall. So the Vikings were going to Fingal and the Normans were down the road in Glasnevin. And uh, we had the monasteries either side of us. So this was a very important place once upon a time and still is. Jim Ryan is a sixth class teacher here at the school. And every year he tries a different project with the boys. So this year we're kind of looking at the community. During COVID, you're kind of wheeling out and looking for somewhere to go. And you always thought I need to go to the nice place. But then I started to really appreciate my own community and notice the differences in the houses and the differences in the gates and the years that they were built and even things you thought were the same weren't. And uh, I felt at that time we were so isolated from community, but also that we grow stronger in our own little sections of the community, that we got to really know the people that were closest to us. So I thought it'd be nice to bring that into the school and get the boys to notice about their own community and find those hidden gems that are kind of lurking around corners if you're willing to have a look. And that's where the genesis of the project came from. What, what did the houses look like compared to now? Well, they were an awful lot different. This estate that I'm living in is, uh, I think it was built in 1951. It was all, when we came up here, it was all surrounded by fields. That's all you could see everywhere. I'm sitting here with... Uh, Mr Daniel Dunn, 12, and... Jack McMahon, 12. And... Jim Ryan of no age. <laughs> well, I coined the name House Tree because we were learning about the history of houses, so House Tree just kind of came to me. It kind of formed because we were walking around the area. We visited St. Canis's graveyard and we were all pretty happy because it's better than just learning it out of a book. And Jack, what was your favourite story or piece of information you found out? So probably the Nether Cross in St. Canis's. So it's one of a kind, essentially. It's a high cross in St. Canis's graveyard in Finglas. There's a whole story about that it was buried to protect it from Cromwell. And then, what was his name, Robert Walsh? A reverend dug it up and he put it where it is today, facing out in the village. So if you look really closely, you can find it. And it's, it's facing opposite to Fingless Village, where the deals is. So it's like near there. So if you looked real, like if you just were bored and you were just looking across, you could maybe see it if you looked really hard. So it's just been there all that time. It's over a thousand years in the same place now. Yeah. Wow. And Daniel, what was a favourite piece of information that you found out? Well, I think finding about the ring fort just opposite to our school was a bombshell. <laughs> the school opposite to here does not look like it has a ring fort in it. It just looks like a regular school. And so. it's ring fort literally across the road. Well, it's buried underneath, so it's been built upon and it's kind of wrecked underneath, but still underneath there. So if you went digging, you'd find it. Yeah, so there's two in the air. So there's one, there's a mound over there, which could be a mat, or it could be a ring fort. It's a circular enclosure, which is just in St. Clair's nursing home. And there's another one near Albert College that we came across the other day. So there's two in the area. So you'd have to imagine that behind us in the school and the housing estates here, there's others. The five episodes of the podcast cover over a thousand years of history in Ballygall, Finglas and Glasnevin. It's going chronology from ring forts up. So like we're looking at the history of our school or the big houses in the area, St. Canis's graveyard itself. 
So, Grandad, how long have you been living in Albert College for? Almost 50 years. Uh, so, what were the houses like when you first moved here? It was all a very new estate, new houses, uh, new people, very young community. I interviewed my granddad. He grew up in the countryside of Limerick. Then he moved here and he worked in the meat company for a while. And then he worked in the unions. So he really got to know his area. So I thought it was perfect to interview him because a lot of people would know him. Uh, when I interviewed him, I learned a lot about the area and him and then my dad growing up. So I thought he was perfect to interview because he definitely knew a lot about the area. I, I think it was a great cooperative spirit because all of us had moved in together and we worked as a co-op of people. We clubbed together to buy wheelbarrows and ladders and lawnmowers because individually it wasn't viable. So that's what we done. We, we formed residence associations, of which I was a member of. We, we, we were very much community-oriented. Every episode contains the boys' own research, scripted by themselves, uh, recorded by themselves, with the help of some of the support teachers here in one of the rooms. And then they've each individually interviewed a grandparent or a person in the community. Um, and then as the years pass by in the years to come, hopefully, at last, we get an opportunity to extend on that and to extend it to further areas of our community and find out more about Ballymun or Glasnevin or Finglas or to be able to extend it and to know more about their community and be proud of it. I'm Niall Carthy. I'm Principal of Sacred Heart Boys School in Ballygall. I know history is kind of about the past, but the kids really get into it when there's a bit of modernity brought into it and the idea of a podcast is right up their street. So you're mixing the old and the new. The kids absolutely love that. And of course, kids learn best when they're doing it themselves and they're active and they're involved and they're the ones choosing where the learning goes and that project like that is exactly what this is all about and I suppose it's exactly what our school is all about and I learned loads from it it's a real thing it's a real podcast and the lads made it themselves you know and, and I've been teaching the school for 16 years I grew up in the area myself I know the place very well but I learned loads from them and I, I just I think that's fantastic and they themselves have made history by being the first class to do this it is incredible that this archive will exist. And just like there in the hall today, there's roll books there from... I was talking to one parent who found his dad's name on the roll book from the 1950s. In 50, 60, 70 years' time, someone's going to come into this school and they're going to listen to these lads and what they produced. Isn't that just amazing? That's history. That's real history as it's happening right now. Principal Niall Carty ending that report from Sacred Heart Boys National School in Ballygall in Dublin. And you can find the House Tree podcast wherever you get your podcasts. That's all we've time for on this evening's programme. Details of all our items, as well as podcasts, are available on our website, rte.ie forward slash history show. My thanks tonight to Mark McGrath on sound and our researcher Liz Gillis. The History Show is a Pegasus production for RTE. For now, from me, Miles Dungan, and producer Lorcan Clancy, goodbye and thanks for listening.